Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Johannes Escudero to the show. Johannes D. Escudero is the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Director of the Coalition for Renewable Natural Gas, also known as the RNG Coalition. Mr. Escudero founded the RNG Coalition in July of 2011 to provide the renewable natural gas industry with a public policy platform and an advocacy voice. Today, the RNG Coalition's membership is international and includes leading companies and organizations from each sector of the RNG industry. RNG Coalition members produce more than 90% of the renewable natural gas in North America. Together, the RNG Coalition advocates for the development, deployment, and utilization of renewable natural gas so that present and future generations have access to clean, domestic renewable fuel and energy supply. Johannes, how are you doing today? Raj, thank you, my friend, for the invitation. And by the way, I love the title name of your podcast, Bigger Than Us. I'm doing very well. And I think part of my well-being, in spite of the circumstances surrounding all of us with the pandemic and the social unrest, stems from the fact that I've attempted to commit my life work to something uh, bigger than myself. Um, I had a professor share one time or challenge really us that we should work on something every day that will outlive us. Um, so long answer to your question, Raj, I'm doing great as I'm committed to that. How about yourself? Well, I'm so happy to hear that. And as the father of three little ones, they give me the inspiration to always now do something that's bigger than myself. And a lot of what I do is to leave that legacy for them. So I appreciate you teeing off with that. And I really like that response. So, Johannes, where in the world are you? I am sheltered in place in Palo Alto, California. Palo Alto is home for me and has been now for just over eight years. Uh, my wife is originally from here. I'm a Bay Area native, uh, but did spend 14 years in the capital city of Sacramento, California, um, where we were employed for nearly a decade in the state capital, served there as legislative director before launching the Coalition for Renewable Natural Gas on July 7th of 2011. And how's the weather out there? We're blessed with fairly moderate weather here. Uh, today will be high for us. 87 degrees is the expected temperature. And we don't have air conditioning. Most homes in the Bay Area do not. Um, so there's a few days like today where um, our, our comfort will be challenged. But uh, that's a first world problem for sure. <laughs> well, I'm happy to say for the first time in quite a few weeks, in Dallas today, it's only 80 degrees. We've had some showers move in. Yesterday was 90-something. Tomorrow's, I think, 95 or 94. But today it's 80 degrees. So it's not very often I can say that. So today I'm going to give a humble brag. 
Absolutely. Enjoy that while it lasts. In fact, uh, my <laughs> co-founder and our general counsel, director of operations, uh, David Cox, is based not too far from you. He's in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area as well. Oh, very nice. So, Johannes, I like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? That probably depends on who you ask, but you're asking me, and so I have the... Uh challenge of, of identifying what I think might be interesting for your audience. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. I often say I'm entrepreneurially afflicted. Um, I consider myself to be a sustainability advocate and an advocate in general. Uh, I'm the son of an immigrant. My mother immigrated from Argentina to the United States. Um, her parents immigrated from uh, Italy and, and the Ukraine, respectively to Argentina, so uh, sort of in the family. Um, my mother sacrificed and sold everything in her possession to afford a plane ticket, and with her sister, left her family and all things familiar behind so that her children could be born in the United States as Americans and have opportunities here that she knew instinctively we otherwise likely would not have had there. And so I think much of my entrepreneurial industrial drive uh, comes honestly and is a reflection of the sacrifice she made. We lost our mother much too soon, seven years ago, um, but her spirit is with me and drives me and is something I am working diligently to transfer to my three children um, so that amidst enjoying the blessing uh, and the relative abundance that, that they have, they don't forget how we came by it, um, where it came from and why it's possible. So that might be interesting. Um, and so there's a special place in my heart for those who, who have come from overseas, um, uh, seeking to, to make a better way and find a better life, um, for their family. So that might be interesting. I find that very interesting. And, we're immigrants too. We've been in Dallas about 30 years. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, you know, in the water here or when you come here and you see the opportunities. I'm, I, I like the word you mentioned regarding entrepreneurship and I feel the same way too. I just feel like this entrepreneurial mentality, you know, maybe immigrants carry it stronger because we see the potential here in America. The fact that you can almost start anything you want to start very easily. We came from London, had stricter, stricter laws around commercialization and business. But um, I feel what you're saying. Yeah. When my, I, my wife's grandparents came through Ellis Island, so we had the chance to go back to Ellis Island and revisit the old landmarks and hear the family stories. And so we, our, our children are the beneficiary of having that immigrant history on both sides. Um, so, yes, that's, that's with me very strong um, and yet very proudly American. Very, very cognizant of the fact that our country is not perfect, but there's no other country I'd prefer to call home and consider ourselves very blessed, not just to be here and to reap the benefits of of the sacrifice and, and the uh, life's work sown by, by those who've gone before us, but also a responsibility to try to make not just our country, but the world a better place, uh, which, which, again, those two dynamics really inform uh, and fuel our passion for, for what we do. Absolutely agree. And I, I really feel like we're going to be fast friends. So thank you for sharing that. Of course. You know, 
Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned a sustainability advocate, and I think that's a great segue for you to share, you know, about your current organization. So, yeah, I'll give you a backstory here. Um, as I mentioned earlier, while serving as legislative director in the California State Legislature in the Assembly, specifically, I was doing fall interim research, which was protocol uh, in preparation for the upcoming legislative session. This would have been the end of 2010. And in California, legislative issue areas at the time were organized into 32 different categories, uh, everything from aging and agriculture all the way to um, transportation, uh, utilities and commerce, etc. And so I came across a biogas bill. And within my portfolio of legislative responsibility, um, energy was of particular interest and as a subset of that renewable energy, but I had never been lobbied. And so therefore was curious uh, as to what biogas was, where it came from, how it was used. And so I called and I've, I've told this story often, a close friend of mine who at the time was an energy trader for the Sacramento municipal utility district, SMUD, uh, where I was a rate payer at the time. And, and I said, Chad, do you know anything about biogas? And he said, you know, somewhat confidentially, but candidly, he said, well, it's funny you should ask. I just closed uh, a large biogas deal and ended up being uh, worth well over $300 million. And so my interest was peaked. I knew it was onto something. And I said, you know, Chad, you got to come over. He lived around the corner. We're sharing coffee in my living room and I'm asking um, questions incessantly. And he's educating me on all things biogas at that point. And some of the natural questions, um, were you know three hundred million dollars? Is that a lot of biogas? He said, "Well, it is. It's um, it's what we need currently to meet our obligation, our requirements to comply with uh, California's renewable portfolio standard or RPS program um, at the time." And he's you know so three hundred million dollars. Well, you know, he said, "Well, eighty percent of that was transportation costs." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, we're actually transporting the gas via pipeline from a landfill in Dallas, Texas." And so as a SMUD ratepayer living and working in Sacramento, I was sort of incensed that we would you know, be buying a renewable resource uh, at an 80% premium potentially. And so my next question was, well, why aren't we buying this biogas from California landfills? And he said, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly why, but I don't think we're allowed to legally. So that was my charge. And I immediately went back uh, to legislative archives and, and discovered why. And, and the result for that reality was back in uh, 1988, there was a vinyl chloride leak. And vinyl chloride is a known carcinogen that can cause reproductive cancers. So there's a vinyl chloride leak at a hazardous waste, not a municipal solid waste, but a hazardous waste landfill in Los Angeles. And there was a huge public outcry, rightfully so, um, such that then-Senator Tom Hayden and his wife at the time, Jane Fonda, stepped in, um, and it was a perfect opportunity for a politician-celebrity-power couple to sort of save the day. So he passed legislation in 1988 that was subsequently referred to for nearly 30 years as the Hayden Amendment. And what that did is it essentially prohibited the injection of any landfill gas, not just from hazardous waste sources, but all landfill from being injected into California's natural gas pipeline system. 
And so long story short, the workaround as RPS requirements ratcheted up, uh, companies, including utilities like the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, had to purchase a renewable base load, base load source of power uh, in sufficient quantities to meet their program compliance obligation. And uh, because because of this 1980 law, there were, were no biogas to pipeline, what we uh, really coined as renewable natural gas projects operating in the state. So SMUD had to go outside of state. Um, and, and, you know, that landfill gas was injected from the McComas Bluff landfill in Dallas, Texas, not too far from you, Raj, um, and transported over a series of pipelines all the way to Sacramento, where SMUD would then combust that biogas to generate renewable electricity um, that they would use to meet their RPS compliance obligations in California. So uh, I knew something had to be done about that. And I reached out to a few stakeholders I was able to identify um, upon noticing a few political oddities, including that in 2010, uh, the biogas bill I mentioned I stumbled upon had been introduced by an influential member of the state assembly who at the time was the chair of the utilities and um, commerce committee, but he never gave his own bill a hearing in his own committee. And I discovered why, and I shared my observations with the a couple of industry stakeholders that I was able to connect with. And I think they were surprised that someone had noticed um, and impressed that we were knowledgeable on the subject and perhaps disappointed that we had met sooner uh, in the legislative process more specifically. So they extended an invitation for me um, to join a small group at a gathering, um, and we did that in, in what would have been March of 2011 uh, in Dallas, Texas. And it was over a private dinner that we realized, David Cox, my co-founder, and I, that the biogas or renewable natural gas industry had no representation. There was no policy advocate or platform. Um, and as unconscionable as that might seem that in the 21st in, in, you know, century, any industry could exist without representation. Such was the case here. And so um, we, we recused ourselves from renewable energy and energy policy in the state assembly and out of our own pockets, we funded and hosted an inaugural membership luncheon on July 7th of 2011, where we cast a vision initially to address the Hayden amendment in California uh, and open and create an in-state market for renewable natural gas projects to be developed. And that's really what attracted um, our founding member companies and industry stakeholders to the table was, was that initiative that we undertook. So um, that's how we began and in, in launching the coalition for renewable natural gas. So that's an amazing story and proof of your entrepreneurial spirit between March and July must have been heads down planning to execute so quickly. It was really, uh, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, but never more true. In my case, I felt the entrepreneurial drive I referenced earlier pushing me to a decision, and I was compelled to take that leap of faith. And I got to a point where 
even if it ended up being a mirage at the bottom, uh, if there was no water in the pool, so to speak, I had to take the leap and I had to jump and do it. I, I could not have lived with myself forever wondering what would have happened if we would have coalesced the industry and, and started the organization. And I'll tell you what may be more interesting for your listeners to learn. This is uh, this speaks to timing. This speaks to providence and, and uh, God's hand in all of this. Uh, I'm a man of deep faith, and I believe we we do what we can, and God does what we can't. But it w- if we would have waited two more weeks to send out the initial invitation for uh, companies to attend our inaugural membership luncheon, we would have lost the opportunity to coalesce the industry because two weeks almost to the day after we sent out those email invitations, uh, a law firm in Sacramento sent out a similar invite. And fortunately, the companies they reached out to had already attended our inaugural luncheon and responded saying, well, we just joined a group that started two weeks ago. And I've been blessed over the nine years since to share this story and others across industries uh, on college campuses with, with undergrad and graduate students. And the advice that I take away and share from that experience is, look, if you have an idea, you have to act on it. Don't wait until the right time. Don't wait until you have enough money. Don't wait until the idea is fully baked until you've achieved a consensus or a level of comfort. If you have an idea and you believe strongly in it, you need to take steps forward. If we would have, we launched and submitted our articles of incorporation to the Secretary of State on July 7th, if we would have waited to the 21st of July, it was summer, vacations were imminent, the state legislature was already on summer recess. If we would have pushed it off two weeks to a more convenient time, um, we wouldn't be here today. It's incredible. At least in this capacity, yeah. It ties into that old adage of jump and build your wings on the way down. Yeah, I love it. That's right. Well, I, I love the story. You know, something I wanted to ask you about, the main crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. Now, obviously, you have a strong skill set working at the state level. Now, I know you mentioned $300 million biogas deal, but to start an organization and to put all your energy behind it, there's obviously an opportunity cost that comes with that. Why, you know, what's your why? What drives you? What motivates you besides the finances, obviously? It certainly wasn't the finance initially. I can promise you that. Um, Starting a nonprofit, you know, we're a 501c6 organization, we hosted that inaugural membership luncheon out of our pocket. So there was certainly a cost there. Uh, probably most of, of my savings at the time. Um, but I believed in the open door opportunity that was before us. And I saw the potential that existed. As I mentioned earlier, it truly was unconscionable to think that any industry, particularly one that I cared so much about in the renewable energy sector, could have existed for as long as they had without representation. It really spoke to their resilience. And uh, certainly the industry's adaptability has proven itself time and time again, um, really responding and reacting to shift in uh, legislative regulatory policy landscapes. 
Um, and so being able to come in and to address that, to share the political understanding, the uh, understanding of the legislative and regulatory processes that our team represents, and to parlay that, not just to benefit an industry, but to truly benefit society. Um, when we talk about what renewable natural gas is and why we do it, uh, we have to understand what it is that we're doing in order to truly appreciate why we do it. And renewable natural gas is simply a product gas derived as organic materials decompose naturally at society's waste stream. So landfills, wastewater treatment facilities, um, organic food processing facilities, agricultural livestock operations, organic materials are deposited, they're disposed of, and then they decompose. And as that material decomposes, a biogas is released. And except for a gas capture system in place, that raw biogas, which is many times more potent than carbon as a greenhouse gas, and which is a short-lived climate pollutant, will in best cases be captured and flared or combusted and literally wasted. Or worse, it's going to vent or escape fugitively into the atmosphere. And so we and, and we often share this when we're advocating at the federal or state provincial levels for um, policies that promulgate markets, that create demand, that, that drive industry production. At the end of the day, we're not about the number of projects being developed. And we're not just about increased volumes of production, although we are. Those are benchmarks that let us know we're making a difference and having an impact on the environment. And we're doing our part, I would say an integral and essential part of a truly diverse energy portfolio um, to help mitigate and address global climate change. And so that's what we do. The why is reflected intentionally in our mission which is, as an organization, we exist to advocate and educate for the sustainable development, deployment, and utilization of renewable natural gas. And here's the why. So that present and future generations, there's what we talked about earlier. It has to be bigger than ourselves, better and bigger than just the near-term immediate benefits, so that future generations have access to domestic, renewable, clean fuel and energy. That's our why. That's why we exist. And that's what keeps you motivated and going every day. And I can feel it in your voice. So what are some of the big learnings you've had on your journey? Well, I am fortunate to have been surrounded, not just on, in our organization, on our team of staff, but amongst our membership, surrounded by some of the most amazing individuals and companies, women, men, uh, from all walks of life, who and, and, and we say the recipe for the modicum of success we have enjoyed as an organization and an industry has been the successful marriage between um, our ability to organize and coalesce the industry and parlay our uh, political access and legislative regulatory um, processes to the industry expertise and experience. And the marriage of those two elements has made for a compelling story that truly resonates uh, with people across the street. And it resonates with elected officials and appointed regulators 
and with with politicians on both sides of the political spectrum. Really fortunate um, to, again, as I mentioned earlier, represent an industry that is that means so much, um, not just for the environment, but is having incredible economic impacts as well. So switching gears a little bit, specifically regarding your organization, can you mention some of the benefits that members get from joining the RNG Coalition? So first and foremost, we're an advocacy organization. So the principal reason member companies join is to help us advance our mission, which I just shared with you to advocate for the sustainable development, deployment, and utilization of renewable natural gas. And we have a staff of 15, and we're actively advocating on a daily basis, even including and throughout the pandemic, uh, transitioning and taking advantage, leveraging relationships remotely uh, through every digital platform available. Um, and, and so at, at the federal, state, and provincial levels, legislative policy, regulatory implementation of those policies, uh, ultimately striving to create as much market demand and alternative markets uh, to serve as backstops for one another so, so that our developers could continue to access investment capital to build projects, to produce volumes of renewable natural gas that can be used for a plethora of sustainable applications. And so that's the principal reason why people join our organization. Uh, we often refer to it as member companies lending their voice to the choir. We're certainly stronger and louder together. Um, and so advocacy would be the number one reason why we exist and why companies join. Uh, again, we represent the renewable natural gas industry in North America specifically. So while our membership is international, our members certainly have international operations and, and business interests. We deploy our resources in the United States and Canada um, and to a degree in Mexico. Um, so it's, it's that advocacy voice that people look for. It's, it's industry leadership that we provide. Um, and we don't do that alone. Again, I mentioned we have an incredible team of, of staff, 15 working full time to advance our mission. We also have um, nine different advisory boards, including uh, chairs and vice chairs that are elected biennially by our membership and working on a number of strategic initiatives, including our SMART initiative, which we'll be remiss if we don't talk about here momentarily. Um, so advocacy would be the, the principal reason for joining the coalition. Um, we have a, an advocacy philosophy, if you will, Raj, that really is informed by our collective experience. And that is, you know, at the end of the day, Advocacy and education is what informs public policy. Public policies, for better or worse, influence markets. And, and markets are what drive demand uh, or, or cause demand to diminish. And so uh, ultimately, demand determines the value of a given commodity. In our case, it's renewable natural gas. And that value impacts the revenue, sustainability, and solvency of our industry stakeholders. So um, advocacy and education is, is very important to us. And then as a byproduct, a beneficial byproduct, because we have effectively coalesced the industry, our membership is representative of approximately 98% of all the renewable natural gas produced in the United States and Canada. Um, when we coalesce the industry, including but not limited to our annual hosted events, we have three of those. We have our RNG Summit, in Washington, D.C., usually in April of every year, we have our RNG Works. It's a technical workshop and trade expo. That's actually coming up 
this September 30th and October 1st, an in-person event. Many are looking forward to in Nashville, Tennessee. And then we conclude with our executive RNG conference in December each year in Southern California. Um, and well, for example, last December, we hosted almost 500 of our industry's executives. And so in addition to the uh, comprehensive program that we afford our registrants, we strategically design our program such that ample time is left available in the afternoon for our business executives and principals to uh, transact business. And so that networking component is really important to our industry too. Um, as a relative nascent industry, we have to stick together. And the beautiful thing of what we've been able to do as a coalition is recognize that at, at once, most of our members are competing with one another on some level. But when it comes to policy and when it comes to advocacy and education, we're all on the same team. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned your SMART initiative. I think it'd be a good time right now to talk about it. So SMART is an acronym for Sustainable Methane Abatement and Recycling Timeline. And it's an initiative we just launched this past December at our RNG 2019 Executive Conference. And it's an initiative that we're actively working with our membership, including through our advisory boards, developing an action plan to capture and control all of the methane that's produced currently from more than 43,000 aggregated organic waste sites in North America by 2050. And part of the action plan ultimately will enable us to achieve meaningful benchmarks by 2030 and 2040. And so that really ties into our why. Uh, it's really will be kind of fruit and evidence of uh, us achieving our mission. And I'll give you a little background on what led to our, our SMART initiative announcement this past December. When we first started the coalition in 2011, Raj, there were 31 RNG projects operating, producing renewable natural gas across North America. Now, for context, the very first renewable natural gas project was actually built way back in 1982. That project is still operating, by the way, and producing renewable natural gas. And National Grid, one of our leadership-level member pipeline utility companies, is delivering much of that renewable gas to, to thousands of their customers in the Northeast. Um, but between 1982 and our founding in 2011, only 30 additional projects have been developed. So over a three-decade span, an average of one project was built per year. And we realized that if we were going to be effective, um, the evidence of that would, would be revealed in number of projects uh, developed. And so in 2011, um, we established our mission. And by 2014, 16 projects had been built. And so what would have probably taken 16 years, we did in a quarter of the time. Wow. And so at the end of 2014, uh, during our 2015 conference, we, we announced um, a new objective that through effective advocacy and education, we would enable the industry to double the number of RNG projects from 47 to 100 projects over the next 10 years by 2025. And so we're very proud to share that we exceeded that goal this past July 2019, five and a half years ahead of schedule. And we now have 116 operating RNG production facilities and more than a hundred projects that have either broken ground or already under construction or have completed significant development and should be online within the next 12 to 18 months. 
So we're on pace to almost double again in the next year and a half, two years. And so in realizing, and, and, and again, when we announced that in our RNG 2015 conference, there were a lot of sort of sideward glances and a lot of comments about, okay, this is really aggressive. Do you understand how long these projects take? Do you understand the de- And so, you know, we really were stepping out, but then having achieved it five and a half years ahead of schedule really challenged us to go back and, and think bigger and more broadly and deeper into the future. And so that's, that was the incubator for our smart initiative which recognize, okay, we're not going to just set a benchmark to double or uh, exponentially develop projects in the near term. We have to contribute more meaningfully to a, a global issue here. And when we talk about methane, the reality is long as our planet is populated by human and animal life, Raj, as long as you and, you and I are sustained by organic materials, there's always going to be some waste. We're never going to eat the banana peel. Uh, and maybe that's not true. I shouldn't say never. As soon as I say that, I'm going to get an email or a, a text <laughs> or a tweet of, of some technology or recipe, right? And that's probably true, but there's always going to be some waste, some refuse. And so long as that's true, we should be proactive about capturing the methane that will be produced as a result of that organic material breaking down naturally. Um, and then what a shame to waste it. What a shame just to capture and, and combust it, right? That's sort of at a minimum, that's what you do so that you minimize the environmental impacts. But why not take it a step further and repurpose or redeem that refuse for productive end use? And that's what renewable natural gas projects actually do is they convert that to ultra low carbon transportation fuel, to renewable electricity, uh, for renewable heat. Um, and I mentioned our industry was adaptable and flexible, but also very innovative. We have companies that are producing an agricultural feed from renewable natural gas production process, as well as renewable plastics. So uh, really, sky is the limit here. And, and we're proud to be leading our industry into that uh, promising horizon. So as a man that's chasing big, hairy goals, what's the new goal from a project perspective? And the second question is, you know, how do you see the expansion of the LCFS program into other states? So those are those are two big questions. So I'll briefly address the first one because I think we, we touched on it. And that is, from a project standpoint, we've identified 43,000 sites in North America. So, you know, we're proud of the number of projects our industry has built, but we're only proud to the extent you're comparing it to past history. When you put that up against the aggregated organic waste sites where methane at a minimum is being captured and flared, we have so much work to do. And that's fantastic because the upside um, is there, both from an environmental and economic standpoint. So we haven't said we need to do X number of projects in the next five years, 10 years. Our eyes are on the big prize, which is all 43,000 sites by 2050. And so we're working with our advisory boards uh, on an action plan to walk that back to figure out, okay, if we are going to meet our goal in 2050, where do we need to be by 2040? Where do we need to be by 2030? Um, and it's not just number of projects, right? It's policy structure. It's it's educating the general public. It's um, market principles of supply and demand. It's reducing the cost of technology. It's figuring out who's responsible and ultimately 
um, in, in paying for the interconnection costs to connect the renewable gas we're producing with the existing infrastructure. And that's not without its hurdles, right? There are some constituencies that are advocating that we completely divest from all natural gas and completely strand existing natural gas infrastructure. And, and we have a different vision. Uh, that would be such a waste when I think we should focus more on decarbonizing the pipeline infrastructure by uh lowering the barrier to entry, if you will, for RNG project development uh, so that we can not just prevent short-lived climate pollutant, greenhouse gas, methane emissions, but convert that to productive end use and transport that more broadly into an interstate and ultimately work to decarbonize our economy. So that's, that's all related to our SMART initiative. And then the LCFS program, which for your listeners who aren't already familiar, LCFS is is low carbon fuel standard. Uh, California's landmark LCFS program was promulgated as a result of Assembly Bill 32 back in 2006. My co-founder and I had the distinct privilege of putting our fingerprints on that legislative process. And then also again in 2016 with Senate Bill 32, which extended um, those statutes beyond 2020 to 2030. So California is recognized for their landmark low carbon fuel standard program and other states with our prompting um, have, have certainly taken some strides. Most recently, Oregon uh, with the Department of Environmental Quality um, has almost copied and pasted California's program there such that we've had to call their attention instances where the word California was actually left in when it should have been replaced with Oregon. Um, and then our, our team, our, our staff and members are working um, in the Midwest on LCFS policy. And, and these are, it, it's not always just as simple as introducing a bill. There's studies that go in, you have to create buy-in from different constituencies and advocacy groups. You have to demonstrate cost effectiveness, environmental impact benefits, et cetera. Um, and, and such has been the case in New York, where we're now in our, our third year, entering our third year of advocacy for an LCFS. Um, uh, and so, again, our goal there is to create as many market alternatives and backstops um, we don't like to put all of our eggs in any one policy basket because, as you know, Raj, the nature of politics, especially in an era of term limits, is every two to four years, new representatives are elected and, and in office. And so on one hand, that keeps us busy in terms of educating them um, about our industry, about the virtues and benefits associated with sustainable development and, and use of RNG. Um, there's also liability there. And that is with a lack of understanding and with a click of a button and a simple vote on a bill or uh, a proposed regulation, um, it, the market impacts could be drastic on our industry. And so I guess to your earlier question, in addition to advocacy, advocacy is essentially a business insurance in, in many respects um, and, and a void that we filled for the industry in that regard. So the LCFS program is vital. Um, it, it requires in lay terms that the carbon intensity of the transportation fuels a given region uses be reduced based on a certain metric. Um, and for, you know, for context, when we first coalesced the industry in 2011, almost 100% of all renewable natural gas was being used 
as a feedstock to generate renewable electricity. So RNG was being combusted and renewable electricity was being produced, like I mentioned with SMUD, under California's RPS program. And at one point, there were 37 different state varieties of RPS programs, if you will. Um, but by 2015, uh, specifically beginning July 11th of 2014, we gained eligibility as a cellulosic biofuel under the Federal Renewable Fuel Standard Program. And that uh, prompted a, a shift in the landscape in terms of how RNG was used. And so increasingly over the last five years, we've seen RNG production um, financed largely in response to market demand for RNG as a transportation fuel. Um, and that's been, again, due in large part to California's low carbon fuel standard program, but I would say just as much, if not more, uh, the Federal Renewable Fuel or RFS uh, program. And such that today, about 82% of all renewable natural gas in North America is going to transportation fuel markets, whereas just under 20% is still being used to generate renewable electricity. And that's fantastic. I think diversity is important, not just in the workplace, but also in our energy portfolios. And so we, again, don't put all of our industry eggs in one policy basket. We think we need to decarbonize our entire economy, even if it's incrementally at the outset. Um, and so RNG has many varied applications and, and we support, um, as our position has always been, RNG, regardless of the feedstock. I mentioned those earlier, the largest stationary feedstocks being landfills and wastewater treatment plants, but also include livestock and agricultural and diverted organic food waste. And we support RNG production that's derived using all competing technologies, uh, which we represent in our membership and for all sustainable end use applications, including the transportation, fuel, renewable power, electricity, combined heat power, et cetera. Well, Johannes, it sounds like you've been on a phenomenal journey. You know, a question I like to end with is that if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? That's a great question, Raj, and one I don't want to take lightly. And especially in the context we find ourselves today, a pandemic, heightened social injustice, um, personal responsibility. We all have a personal responsibility. And it's something I, I've noted um, with our team, with our members, even on social media, that the basic right to human life, to oxygen and justice, <laughs> to begin, um, is something that every human being deserves. And we can't put our mission ahead of that. It may be what we're focused on as an organization or as a business. It may be our business mission. But ultimately, it's secondary to the personal responsibility that each of us bear to do our part to make the world a better place. And that starts in our heart, that starts in our home, and it bleeds out into society from there. But if we don't get it right in our house first, we can't ever expect the White House to fix it for the rest of us. And so I think personal responsibility, and for me, that's a personal responsibility to my wife and my children, to my extended family, to my neighborhood, to my community, and to take advantage of the relationships and the resources at my disposal, the organization that I've been fortunate to build uh, along with the rest of our team to, to leverage our collective expertise and parlay our experience and knowledge to do what we can to make the world a better place, whether that's politically and ultimately for benefit of, of the environment or the economy. But really, it's about people.
And we say this often too, we're sustainability advocates, but we're not, why are we concerned with the environment? And why do we want to improve our economy? It's because of people. It's because of society. And if that's going to change, it's going to change because we make that choice. And so I think personal responsibility, we have a unique opportunity amidst this pandemic, particularly those of us who've been sheltered in place and are still sheltered in place, to pause and reflect and identify just exactly what that personal responsibility is personally and professionally. And then to not just ponder, but to then put those thoughts into action so that we can truly transform the world around us. Johannes, thank you so much for sharing that and for all the information regarding the RNG Coalition. I've so enjoyed speaking to you. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't or have not explored that you'd like to talk about before we go? Oh, Raj, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to connect with you. And I, I too get the sense that our connection will be uh, beyond just this podcast interview and, and a friendship. I look forward to meeting you in person and continuing this conversation and seeing where uh, the relationship leads us. So no, I'm, I'm certainly happy to hang on and answer a few more questions if anything comes to mind. But um, I appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your platform so that we could share part of our story um, and, and help educate people. You know, if you, if you took an informal survey of, of your closest friends and you asked them what renewable natural gas was, probably nine out of ten wouldn't know. Maybe one or two would confuse RNG with conventional natural gas. Uh, whereas if you were to ask them about wind or solar, uh, e- immediately we envision a turbine or a solar panel so we can identify what those renewable energy segments are. And that's just a, a function of time. Uh, large-scale wind and solar industry associations have about a 15-year head start on RNG. And we're not competing. We're complementary. Obviously, wind and solar are intermittent resources. And for every intermittent source of energy, you have to have a base load to compensate for not just peaks and, and valleys of, of demand, but intermittent compensation. And so um, we look forward to, again, thank you for, for lending your platform and your podcast audience and, and giving us a chance to help educate um, people as to what renewable natural gas is and, and the real environmental and economic benefits that can be realized as a result of its increased use. And thank you for saying that. You know, one of the reasons, one of the pillars of why I'm doing this show is to highlight like you mentioned, everyone knows about solar and wind, but what else out is out there? You know, who are the interesting people doing it and how can we spotlight them and as a community bring them together? So I really appreciate you saying that. And perhaps we can do a part two in the future, you know, as, as the organization grows. So thank you so much again, Johannes, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Would love that, Raj. Uh, let's, let's connect offline as well. Thank you so much for the interview and uh, look forward to hopefully, uh, an interesting podcast and some good feedback from your audience. So thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to show your support, please share our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.